Chapter 4. Pulmonology. Topic 1. Anatomy and Physiology. This next chapter will review the anatomy and physiology of the lungs. Although somewhat difficult in this audio format to describe some of the normal anatomy and physiology, I encourage you to refer to the accompanying book or other reference resource to gain a holistic view, as this will help you better understand many of the pathologies throughout the chapter. We will begin with an overview of basic lung and tracheobronchial anatomy. The air journey into the lung starts centrally and branches peripherally through a segmenting airway system. This airway system commences with the trachea. From there, it further subdivides into a network of passageways, namely the main bronchi, lobar bronchi, segmental bronchus, bronchioles, and terminal bronchioles, collectively constituting the conducting zone. Progressing to the more distal end, the airway system segments into the respiratory bronchioles, alveolar ducts, and alveoli, creating the respiratory zone. Next, we look at the basic anatomy and physiology of gas exchange taking place at the alveoli. Deoxygenated blood journeys from the body's periphery arrives at the right side of the heart and ultimately reaches the pulmonary capillaries. It is at this juncture, the alveolar capillary interface, where the crucial exchange of carbon dioxide transpires. There are two primary types of cells found in the alveoli, type 1 and type 2 pneumocytes. Let's start with type 1 pneumocytes. These cells are thin and flat, allowing for a minimal barrier between the air in the alveoli and the blood in the surrounding capillaries. This design is essential for their main function, which is the exchange of gases, namely oxygen and carbon dioxide, between the lungs and the bloodstream. Despite being less numerous than their type 2 counterparts, type 1 pneumocytes cover approximately 95% of the alveolar surface, thanks to their large, flattened shape. Moving on to type 2 pneumocytes, these cells are larger and rounder but cover less surface area. They serve several important functions. First, type 2. Pneumocytes produce and secrete surfactant, a lipoprotein complex that reduces surface tension within the alveoli. This keeps the alveoli from collapsing during exhalation and significantly reduces the effort required for the next inhalation. Secondly, these cells are essential for the repair and regeneration of both type 1 and type 2 pneumocytes. This regeneration capability is particularly crucial given the constant exposure of the alveoli to airborne particles and pathogens. Moving on, another concept to be aware of is lung volumes. Variations in lung volume can provide invaluable insights into determining the presence of obstructive versus restrictive lung disease. Some basic definitions are as follows, starting with basic lung volumes. The tidal volume, TV, refers to the amount of air that is inhaled or exhaled in a normal breath. This is typically around 500 milliliters in a healthy adult at rest. The inspiratory reserve volume, IRV, is the additional volume of air that can be inhaled into the lungs after a normal inhalation. The expiratory reserve volume, ERV, is the extra volume of air that can be forcibly exhaled after a normal exhalation. Lastly, the residual volume, RV, refers to the amount of air that remains in the lungs after maximal exhalation. This volume cannot be measured directly, but is important for keeping the lungs open even after maximal expiration. Now let's look at the lung capacities. The inspiratory capacity, IC, is the maximum volume of air that can be inhaled after a normal exhalation. It's the sum of the tidal volume and the inspiratory reserve volume. The functional residual capacity, FRC, is the volume of air remaining in the lungs after a normal exhalation. It is the sum of the residual volume and the expiratory reserve volume. The vital capacity, VC, is the total volume of air that can be exhaled after maximal inhalation. 
It's the sum of the tidal volume, the inspiratory reserve volume, and the expiratory reserve volume. The total lung capacity, TLC, is the maximum volume of air the lungs can hold. It is the sum of all four volumes, the tidal volume, the inspiratory reserve volume, the expiratory reserve volume, and the residual volume. Finally, familiarizing yourself with the hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve will be of use in understanding certain pathologies and their effect on oxygen affinity to hemoglobin. A range of causes can instigate shifts in this curve, potentially facilitating increased or decreased oxygen unloading to peripheral tissues. Now we delve a bit deeper into the causes that lead to a right shift in this curve, which signifies a decreased oxygen affinity. Firstly, fever can induce a rightward shift in the curve. As body temperature increases, hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen reduces, thus enhancing the release of oxygen to the tissues. This mechanism helps in meeting the higher oxygen demand during fever. Secondly, increased levels of 2,3-bisphosphoglycerate or 2,3-BPG can also lead to a rightward shift. 2,3-BPG is a byproduct of glucose metabolism and influences hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen. When its levels rise, hemoglobin is more likely to release oxygen to the tissues, which in turn decreases its oxygen affinity. Lastly, an increased concentration of hydrogen ions can result in acidosis, another cause of a rightward shift in the curve. Acidosis, a condition characterized by excessive acidity in the blood, reduces the hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen. This is often referred to as the Bohr effect. As a result, more oxygen is released to the tissues where it's needed most. We will now turn our attention to the factors leading to a leftward shift, signifying an increased affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen. Our first cause of a leftward shift is hypothermia, or a decrease in body temperature. As the body's temperature falls, hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen increases. This means that hemoglobin holds onto oxygen more tightly, which may seem counterintuitive at first, but under conditions of lower metabolic demand associated with hypothermia, less oxygen needs to be delivered to the tissues. Next, we consider the role of 2,3-bisphosphoglycerate, or 2,3-BPG. A decrease in 2,3-BPG levels leads to an increase in the oxygen affinity of hemoglobin, causing a leftward shift in the curve. The hemoglobin holds onto oxygen more strongly, decreasing the amount of oxygen delivered to tissues. Lastly, a decrease in the concentration of hydrogen ions or a state of alkalosis, can also induce a leftward shift in the curve. Alkalosis is a condition characterized by an excess of base or lack of acids in the blood, leading to an increase in blood pH. The increased pH or reduced hydrogen ion concentration results in increased oxygen affinity, another example of the Bohr effect, but in the opposite direction compared to acidosis.